According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Matthew 26. We had last week off because of the Schaefer Conference, but two weeks ago we started the uh, First Communion Service, episode 22, in our Harmony of the Gospels. Institution of the Lord's Supper, episode 22 in the, this final section of Jesus' last week of work at Jerusalem. Institution of the Lord's Supper. This is an episode that's featured in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. It is not featured in the Gospel of John, and so the, the harmony between the Synoptics and John is then uh, part of the exercise that we do to try to see, uh, put the events of this night in the proper sequence. Uh, we commented in the past that uh, we prefer the order in uh, Matthew to the order in Luke as it comes to this. Uh, Luke puts the communion service pretty early in the night and actually prior to the exposure of Judas Iscariot and Judas's departure. Um, whereas in Matthew and Mark, the exposure of Judas comes first and then the communion service. I think likewise, even though John does not record communion, I think uh, John is in agreement with Matthew and Mark in terms of um, exposing uh, Judas fairly early. Judas's departure then occasions the warning that the other disciples are warned about their own falling away and, and their own need to uh, uh, to remain faithful. So in any event, we're, we're following the order of Matthew and Mark, and uh, we recognize that, that Luke gives this in a slightly different sequence. And that's, that it just is what it is, and we don't really get all that worked up over it. All right, Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All right, so this is the sequence of events as we have it here. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We didn't pray yet, right? All right, let's pray to make sure we are setting aside distractions and prepared for truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We ask for your blessing upon our study today, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So two weeks ago, we got as far as points one and two, I believe. And uh, I do want to take the time to read from Arnold Fruchtenbaum today in his Passover Haggadah. Um, the institution of the Lord's Supper took place uh, in the course of partaking of Passover, uh, but communion is not the same as Passover, and I think we understand that, but just in case, we'll go ahead and break it down for you. Point one in the notes, bread and wine were features of Jewish Passover, but Jesus gave his disciples a new insight applicable to the dispensation of the church and commanded for church observance. The church is not commanded to observe Passover, but with respect to the Bread and the cup, we are commanded to do this in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And not only do we have the record of this in the gospel accounts, but we also have uh, that which was revealed to Paul. And it's recorded for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he says, I received from the Lord that which I delivered unto you. And so this was evidently a part of Paul's training when he was in the wilderness of Arabia for those three years. That his, uh, Paul says he did not consult with flesh and blood. He did not receive his instruction from uh, apostles. He was taught directly from the Lord during that time of his, uh, of his uh, what, we, what I think of as his desert seminary training. And uh, in any event, he said, I received from the Lord that which I delivered unto you, that the Lord on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
And then he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And uh, likewise the cup. Do this in remembrance of me. Both elements are instructed to the Apostle Paul in terms of a do this in remembrance of me. That's recorded for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now the gospel accounts uh, record it in, uh, in different um, ways. Uh, typically the uh, do this in remembrance of me uh, comes from the Luke account, at least pertaining to the cup. And uh, we understand that for what it is there. All right. So bread and wine were features of the Jewish Passover. But Jesus gave his disciples a new insight applicable to the dispensation of the church and commanded for church observance. In other words, remember, Passover was a commemoration of their deliverance from Egypt. And Passover was something for Israel to commemorate. What Yahweh did on behalf of Israel. And year after year after year, Israel would take part in Passover to commemorate what Yahweh did for Israel. As such, it's not appropriate for the church to observe Passover, not in the same way. I mean, we can do it as a cultural thing or we could study it as a as a doctrine or a pattern. I got a letter in the mail the other day that uh, that chosen people ministries or or. Uh, Ariel Ministries, these different groups, they would want to come in and do a demonstration for us to give us uh, the doctrinal understanding of the foundations of, of, uh, of things. And so we can do that. We can take Passover just as a, as a study as, uh, as for its information content, for its doctrinal value. But we don't observe it as a ritual of the church. It's not our ritual. It's Israel's ritual. You understand. So what's given here is something new. And it's something, I believe, after Judas departs specifically for uh, those apostles that will become um, church-age apostles once the day of Pentecost uh, ushers in the, uh, the body of Christ. We're told that the bread is the body of Christ. The cup is the blood of Christ. And the reason why this new significance, this new insight has to be understood this way is because Passover was looking back to the deliverance from Egypt as a shadow, as a type. All right, Gina. The, uh, that's what Passover was about. But with, with Christ dying on the cross, with Christ fulfilling the, the reality of what the shadows were all pointing forward to, all right, there's a need for a new significance to be commemorated. And even Passover itself will have a new significance when we get to the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, we're told that Israel will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. In the Millennial Kingdom, Israel is going to say, as the Lord lives, who regathered us from the four corners of the earth, who brought us into the Millennial Kingdom of Jesus Christ on the Davidic throne. All right, so they will observe pa Passover throughout the, the thousand-year reign of Christ, but it will be it will have the new added significance of not just the Exodus, but also the uh, global regathering of Israel. They will not observe Passover, and they will not observe uh, communion, however, because communion is limited to a church-age observance. The bread is the body of Christ; the cup is the blood of Christ. The cup and or the wine is the blood of Christ. And this is clear in, uh, in each of these gospel accounts. Point C then, eating and drinking are metaphors for faith. We understand that. Eating and drinking are metaphors for faith. This has been true uh, going back to John chapter 6 when the Lord gave his teaching there related to the bread of heaven, eating my bread, uh, eating my flesh, drinking my blood. Eating and drinking are metaphors for faith. And so the ritual, when we partake of the ritual, and when the ritual includes eating and drinking, uh, we recognize that the ritual is teaching principles of faith. And so the ritual of communion is only for those who have come to Christ in faith. Unbelievers should not partake of communion. Uh, unbelievers are not in the faith that we are in in terms of the body of Christ. And so eating and drinking, uh, each Sunday when we, each, uh, you know, we have communion once a month, second Sunday of every month, on Communion Sunday, everyone that eats and drinks, literally, that partakes of the ritual, is, uh, is proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. We are testifying publicly that we are of those who have eaten His flesh and drunk His blood. We, we recognize that we are partakers of Christ through faith. And so we don't confuse the ritual with the reality. Under point two, I cited Arnold Fruchtenbaum's uh, reference 
It's called a Passover Haggadah. And uh, it is helpful in appreciating the Jewish background and practices for the Passover meal. Uh, the the uh, background and practices for this very night in which uh, we uh, different uh, people come to different understandings as far as why does Luke have more than one cup? He seems to have a cup before the bread and then a cup after the bread. Why is there more than one cup? And that bothers people that don't understand the Jewish background for the Passover meal. That this, uh, this evening is a very long evening. There are four different cups. There are different uh, items of bread. There are different sops, different uh, things that are dipped. There are bitter herbs. There's the, the, uh, the different components of it. All right. And I think I did mention two weeks ago that this was something that we would like to uh, have again. Uh, we, it's been a long time since we had this the last time. My, my uh, 20-year-old son was about four when we did this uh, previously. So that tells you it's been a long time since we've done something like this. And given now that we have uh, a larger facility and a larger dining room, I think we ought to do the full meal deal, do the complete dinner with lamb and everything else and, and just spend the hours needed to, uh, to do this. And two weeks ago, I mentioned that I'd like to do this at some point in time. And then what happens? In the meantime, I receive a letter in the mail from one of uh, our own Fruit and Bombs associates with Ariel Ministries asking if we can schedule uh, schedule something like this. So um, since I don't believe in coincidence, I think we ought to, ought to go ahead and respond to what the Lord is doing for us there. Anyway, you can find this at Amazon or you can order it from Ariel Ministries. Uh, the ISBN is 0-914-863-04-05. And uh, you can find that christianbook.com, I'm sure, or uh, Amazon or any, uh, or walk into uh, uh, Lifeway and I'm sure Dan or Carol would be glad to help you out. Let me go ahead and bring it up here in Logos. So uh, I think I can pull it up this way. Here we go. And even if I can't remember how to spell Haggadah, Logos does. Let me read the Hebrew version of the English version. Let's do English. All right. I'm just joking. I couldn't read the Hebrew version. All right. <coughs> I, uh, I do my best with biblical Hebrew. Reading it, the idea of reading a modern Hebrew text would uh, is even more intimidating. All right. Passover recipes. Did I read some of this already last week? I did not. Okay. It just opened up to where I had it open before. All right. The services of the Passover, and, and this is... Uh, Different uh, components to this, the kindling of the candles and all the procedures involved there, the uh, first cup, let me expand this to a full page, there we go, the Kadesh, the first cup is called the cup of blessing, and then there's the first washing of hands, there's the dipping of the parsley, there's the breaking of the middle matzah, and it's interesting, as it's broken, what, what gets done with it? Does it get eaten? It gets hidden. There you go. You've been to one of these before, or more than once. Okay. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then four questions that are asked. Ritual questions with r- ritual responses. Then there's the telling of the story of the Passover. Then there's the second cup, called the cup of plagues. Then there's the second washing of hands. Then there's the eating of the bitter herbs. The eating of the bitter herbs with Heroseth. The Passover supper. Followed by the eating of the Afakomen. Then the third cup, the cup of redemption. Then the fourth cup, the cup of praise. And so different folks that study this uh, break down the, uh, uh, try to determine on these cups and the order that, uh, looks like we're getting some kind of a delivery out there, Doug, if you want to catch that. The, um, uh, some folks try to break the different cups down in Luke. Now Luke mentions two cups. Matthew and Mark only mention one cup. And so they try to fit the cups and the bread into this uh, structure into these four different cups. and But they don't always agree with one another in terms of saying, well, it's the third cup and the fourth cup. And well, some say, no, it's the second cup and the third cup. Or some say it's, the, it's none of them, right? That, uh, that uh, you know, they had, they had all the cups. They had all the meal. They had all the everything. It was all said and done with Judas prior to exposing Judas and sending Judas out. And then Jesus gave them communion with a bread and a cup and and taught them the uh, circumstances there. I think a lot of commentators write uh, or make claims to things more than they legitimately can. 
They make confident assertions, and the truth is we, we don't know. There's no level of detail in the text that allows us to, to reconcile them with the precision that some folks want that precision in any event. All right, so you've got the third cup is the cup of redemption. Uh, the fourth cup, halal, the cup of praise. Of course, you know, hallelujah, and uh, even people that don't know Hebrew know the halal. Then, uh, and then... What he teaches, what Fruchtemam then teaches after that, that, that ends the Jewish component of it. And then what he does is he adds the com- communion after that, as uh, here, the remembrance of me, le zikaron, zakar is the Hebrew verb that means to remember, Zechariah, Yahweh remembers. So he has the le zikaron for the remembrance of me. That's where he places the communion observance. And then Nertzah, the service is complete. All right. If you want Heroseth recipes, you got it here. Chopped liver appetizer, the fish, the soup, matzo balls. Well, it's almost like a cookbook as well as uh, <laughs> everything else. Roast lamb, vegetables. All right. My favorite part, the dessert. All right, now, I've gone back and forth in my mind about how much to read related to some of this early stuff. The woman of the house will kindle the candles and then say the following, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your grace and has permitted us to kindle the festival light. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has kept us in life and has preserved us and has enabled us to reach this season. And then the master of the house says, As a woman begins the Seder and gives light to the Passover table, so it was a woman who began the redemptive career of Messiah or Passover by giving birth to the light of the world. Anyway. Let me skip on down. Here's the first cup. All right. The cup of blessing. Fill the first cup and say the Kaddush. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, sovereign of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and did exalt us above all nations and did sanctify us with your commandment and with love have you given us, O Lord our God. Um, Concerning the first cup, it is written. And then in Arnold's Haggadah, he does something that, of course, would not be done in any... um, non-Christian Jewish Haggadah, he reads from Luke. (laughs) All right. He reads uh, from the scriptures that pertains to Jesus. So concerning the first cup, it is written, and when the hour was come, he sat down and the apostles with him and he said unto them, with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he received a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I shall not drink from henceforth of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. All right. And then instruct the guest to recline on the left side while drinking the wine of the Kadush. So perhaps we'll have to actually bring in some actual Roman style uh, couches upon which we can recline on the uh, the left side there. All right. The first washing of the hands. The woman performs the washing of the hands. The master of the house then says. And it's interesting. We got a, a uh, another quotation here. This one comes from John chapter 13. Talking about how the Lord washed the disciples' feet. Then the dipping of the parsley. From Matthew 26. Our passage here. He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. And Judas, who betrayed him, answered and said, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said unto him, You have said it yourself. Then the breaking of the middle matzah. Now, what's really interesting about this breaking and about hiding it, it is, uh, it's interesting because the Jews, even the unbelieving Jews, they practice this. This is a part of their observance. This is a part of their ritual. And they don't know why. 
And it's really remarkable how this uh, speaks to Christ, how this speaks to uh, our Savior and His rejection by His people, His death, His burial, and His coming forth again. And it's neat when a Messianic Jew or a believing Jew, somebody that understands the the gospel of Christ, can then uh, teach the reality that goes with the ritual. All right. The um, matzah is unleavened. And it's kind of neat the way that it's baked and the way that it has stripes on it and the way that it has holes pierced into it. Um, So it's demonstrated to be flat as unleavened. It's striped, show that it is striped. It's pierced, hold it up to the candle or hold the candle behind it to show the holes. Even so, Messiah was unleavened, that is, Christ is sinless. Uh, Even so, Messiah was striped, um, that is, by way of the Roman whip. Even so, Messiah was pierced, that is, by the nails in his hands and his feet and by the spear in his side. Now, for this, you need the actual large matzah. You need the large cracker type. uh, You can't use the little bits that we use for our communion service. You actually have to have the larger matzah cracker type material. Quoting 1 Corinthians related to leaven. Quoting John and Isaiah related to the stripes. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Quoting John, quoting Zechariah. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look unto me whom they have Zechariah chapter 12. You know, the Hebrew Scriptures wrote of this. The Hebrew Scriptures prophesied that Israel would would, uh, crucify him. It's actually a component of second advent. They have to look upon the one that they pierced. They have to be humbled. They have to be repentant. They have to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all the process of tribulation that will be necessary before the Christ can come and claim his throne. All right, then four questions. The cup is filled the second time, and the youngest of the company then asks this question, why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights, we may eat either leavened or unleavened bread, but on this night only unleavened bread. On all other nights, we may eat any species of herbs, but on this night only bitter herbs. On the other nights, we do not dip even once, but on this night twice. On all other nights, we eat or drink, either sitting or reclining, but on this night we all recline. It's interesting on that double dipping there. On this night, we, we dip twice. It's, it goes to what we were talking about a few weeks ago related to, I believe there were two dipping occasions in the, in the uh, upper room that night. One in which they dipped together. Jesus and Judas both reached their hands together at the same time. But then the second dipping where Jesus himself did the dipping and gave that morsel to Judas for that second dipping episode. different components of it there. And so when the youngest asks the question, why is this night different? This gives the, uh, the master of the house, the father or whoever the master of the house is, then the opportunity to teach about the night of Passover, how the firstborn son was spared and how they were delivered out of the land of Egypt. All of this is, uh, you know, observed by the Jewish people, year after year after year after year. Remarkable how the unbelieving Jewish people are observing this year after year after year, failing to see the significance of its fulfillment in, in the one that they regard as a, a false Christ, as a, as a heretic. Now you read the Talmud and, and Jesus, the Galilean, the carpenter, Galilean carpenter, he was executed properly. You know, that the Jews were right for putting him to death because he was a blasphemer. Claiming to be God. All right. Well, there's a whole lot more on this, but I think rather than read the whole thing, you have the title and uh, you can find it. If you uh, have trouble finding it, just shoot me an email and I will uh, send you a link and you can get that uh, purchase for yourself if you so desire. All right. Let's move on to point three. Let's talk about this new covenant. Because we're told in all these gospel records that the cup is 
the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. So point three, let's understand this new covenant. The new covenant is not with the church. The new covenant is with Israel. Repentant and accepting Christ. Regathered from the four corners of the earth. And if you understand this, you are far and away ahead of 90% of Christianity today. All right. The new covenant is not with the church, but with Israel. Repentant and accepting Christ. Not Israel of the Old Testament. It was given in the Old Testament. But it was given on the uh, eve of their national destruction, their captivity to Babylon. And it was given with the recognition that it would be ratified and put into place at the time of their millennial blessings. So the new covenant is not with the church, but with Israel. I'll explain what our relationship is to the new covenant in the process of uh, subpoints here. The new covenant is not with the church, but with Israel. Repentant and accepting Christ. Regathered from the four corners of the earth. And for this we have Jeremiah 31, 31 through 37, as well as 32 verses 37 through 40. Back-to-back chapters. We want to understand the context of both chapters. Jeremiah's peer was Ezekiel. And we have information found in Ezekiel 20 verse 37. Ezekiel 34, verses 25 through 31. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 32. And Ezekiel 37, 26 through 28. I believe when you combine Jeremiah together with Ezekiel, we get the best and clearest um, understanding as it relates to the new covenant. And under what conditions can God put the new covenant into effect? The new covenant did not go into effect the day that he revealed it to Jeremiah. The new covenant was always something looking forward to a coming day when it would be ratified and when it would be applied. All right. I think probably in addition to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, if you want to add some New Testament references, where would you turn? You turn to the book of Hebrews. You would turn to the book of Hebrews, which gives the contrast between the old and the new. The old covenant with Moses that's obsolete, ready to pass away. And the new covenant that's uh, ready to appear. But once again, a new covenant that's not with the church. A new covenant that's with Israel. And hopefully we'll understand that before we leave here today. Alright, so join me if you would in Jeremiah 31. I like the fact that it's 31-31. You know, if if you need a, a little memory device to try to remember, it helps when the numbers are the same. Like 22-22 and 31-31 and things of that nature. <clears throat> or maybe it's just me. I'm the, I'm the anorexic moron that can't memorize Bible verses. You guys just had to figure it out a long time ago. Alright. Jeremiah 31-31. Did I say anorexic? Anore- dyslexic. Alright. Man, I am... All kinds of confused. You knew what I meant. All right. All right. Anorexia is another issue. Which I clearly have no struggles with. All right. So Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Days are coming. So, do you expect that this is something that's happening right now? No. No. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. All right, days are coming. In fact, we even have prior to this, we have days are coming. If you back up to verse 27, you're going to see days are coming. And you're going to have um, some pretty unhappy things there in verses 27 through 30. We're going to have judgment. We're going to have discipline upon Israel. We're going to have sour grapes. We're going to have children's teeth set on edge. Messages that are very similar to what we have in Ezekiel. All right. Uh, How they're going to be, um, you know, disciplined and then rebuilt again. 
All right, everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. And Ezekiel is going to expand upon that doctrine of sour grapes. All right, so behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. So days are coming for judgment. Days are coming for restoration. And this new covenant is associated with the restoration after the judgment. All right, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Now, you don't have to be a theologian or a Hebrew scholar or even particularly smart. Just read it for what it says. Who is the new covenant made with? Is it made with the church? Oh, it's made with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And the reason why it's broken down that way is because at this time it is a divided kingdom. Not only has it been a divided kingdom since the days of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, but it's a divided kingdom with the northern kingdom already gone. The northern kingdom was swept away by the Assyrians. Those ten tribes are gone. All that remains now is Judah and Benjamin in the south, and they're being threatened by Babylon. And so it's expressed this way to say, no, the new covenant will go into effect, and it's going to be with all Israel, all 12 tribes, the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Don't let Israel's uh, past or present captivity uh, dissuade you, and don't let Judah's pending captivity dissuade you. There is a future for Israel. There is a future. Plans for you, for your blessing, not your calamity, and so forth. Israel has a future and a hope. Much of uh, Jeremiah addresses this. Now, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Who was that? Israel. All right. Was that the church? Did he bring the church out of Egypt and give us the covenant at Sinai? No. All of this is Israel. Israel received the Mosaic covenant, and this is designed to replace that. The church can have no part in the new covenant because we had no part in the Mosaic covenant. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband of them, declares the Lord. And remember, the covenant with Moses was conditional. If you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will discipline you. And they, they had an, an obligation to maintain it, and they broke it again and again and again. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now, it's a bit shortened there. He doesn't repeat the redundancy of house of Israel, house of Judah. And I think that's significant. It shows that it won't be a divided kingdom at the time that he restores them. They will be once again a unified kingdom, the house of Israel at this point. I will make this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. So they're not going to be tablets of stone. It's going to be in their heart. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. You know, in the Mosaic Covenant, the priests and the Levites were the teachers and they had the tablets of stone and they had uh, <clears throat> the law of Moses and they, they had to teach the people. But in the Millennial Kingdom, all Israel will have a teaching function. All Israel will have a prophetic office. The, the Spirit will be poured forth on all mankind and the Jewish people will be the teachers for the Gentiles for the thousand year reign of Christ. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, here's the biggest problem. <laughs> um, Christians, look at that last little phrase there in verse 34. Wow, forgive their sins? Their sins I will remember no more? And they look at that and they say, Ah, well, my sins are forgiven. God doesn't remember my sins anymore. This must be talking about me. This must be talking about the church. Oh, they say, wow, the new covenant, that must be with the church because our sins are forgiven. God remembers, you know, our iniquity no more. Okay. And you understand this is a flaw. This is a fallacy. You're taking one little snippet out of a much larger context and saying, well, my sins are forgiven. This must apply to me. 
goes back to, uh, well, yeah, your sins are forgiven, granted. But you're, that's different from saying you're the, the one that this passage is dealing with. Like the, uh, the fallacy that, that Dan was pointing out on Sunday nights, you know. Um, how did that go again? Your logic? All, all pastors are geniuses? What was that? Okay, there you go. Premise one, all pastors are geniuses, right? Premise two, Bob is a pastor. All right. I enjoyed that. Could you teach that again if that's a... Uh, if you missed that last Sunday night. I'd... In any event, if you can, if you can highlight the fallacy, then, then you recognize it's, it's, it's inappropriate to, to say because our sins are forgiven... Um, you know, this verse doesn't say that they're the only people in the universe that ever have their sins forgiven, right? In any event, thus says the Lord. Let's continue. So all the things prior to that phrase apply to Israel. What about all the things after the, the phrase? So thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord. In other words, if, if the sun, moon, and stars just go out forever, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. You know, Hitler tried to destroy the Jews, but he tried the wrong method. If you want to destroy the Jewish people, here's how you do it. First of all, you have to extinguish the sun. Then you have to extinguish every star in the universe. The moon itself will, will go out once the sun is out, so don't worry about that. But extinguish the sun and extinguish every star in the universe. Only then will Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the nation of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So, um, well, look at that. So all the verses before that little snippet of verse 34 was all related to Israel. And all the verses after that little snippet in verse 34 are all about Israel. What does that tell you about that little snippet about I will forgive their sins? Yeah, it's about Israel. It's about Israel. And I think, <clears throat> again, we do ourselves a favor if we identify when is a passage talking to individuals and when is a passage talking to a nation, talking to Israel in the corporate reality of Israel as a nation, as a corporate uh, nation? Is it the individual sins of an individual believer here or is it the national sins of a nation that's being forgiven and a nation that's being restored and a nation that's being exalted? Is, in other words, we've got to identify the blood of Christ as it applies to the nation of Israel. When will that blood be smeared and applied to the nation of Israel? Yes, sir. Uh, I believe it's singular in both cases. Yeah, their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. I believe it's singular in both cases. All right, so that's how we have it in chapter 31. Now it moves on to chapter 32. <clears throat> and verses 37 through 40. And uh, what happens here in the meantime is Jeremiah is imprisoned and some other things happen here. I'd love to teach Jeremiah someday. I want to teach Isaiah someday and Jeremiah someday. Add those notebooks to our Ezekiel notebook and Daniel notebook. And then uh, we'll have a good collection of notebooks out there in the hallway. All right. <laughs> and of course, having a good collection of notebooks in the hallway is a high priority in every, every ministry. All right. Verse 36 of Jeremiah 32. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger. Now, now it's interesting. You've got to be careful. And there's, people don't do this with the prophets. Many of the messages as, as Israel is carried into captivity, 
to Babylon, they're promised to return. But quite a few of the passages aren't speaking about the the 70 year later return under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. Some of them are, a lot of them are, but a lot of them are not. A lot of them use the occasion of the Babylonian exile to actually prophesy to the far future and speak of the global regathering of Second Advent. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm talking about there? And so here's what we see. They're being carried away to Babylon. That's one land. But behold, I will gather them out of all the lands. And so we have a scope here that's more than just a local, regional Babylonian exile. We actually have looking forward to Second Advent. I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, in my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people. I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. Do you think that was fulfilled when Zerubbabel brought them back? No. Just read Ezra and Nehemiah. They weren't one heart and one way. They were having fights back then. Were they were they they have one heart and one way during the life of Christ? No, in Pharisees, Sadducees, all kinds of factions, all kinds of uh, schisms. They certainly weren't loving the Lord their God. They crucified the Lord their God. So I'll give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. You understand when he said in chapter thirty-one, days are coming. He says in chapter 32, when those days are. Those days are when he gathers them from the four corners of the earth and when he gives them one new heart and not before. It cannot happen until they go through their time of national discipline. It cannot happen until they are forged in the unity of of this. What I find uh, amazing is that a thousand years later, at the Gog-Magog Rebellion, when Satan is released out of the abyss and he deceives the nations one final time, <clears throat> there's one nation he doesn't deceive. There's one nation he can't deceive. There's one faithful nation on the earth at the end of the millennium when uh, Satan leads the Gog-Magog revolt. And that one faithful nation is Israel. <laughs> Can you believe it? You know, read the Old Testament and see Israel's history and you say, there's no way they're going to be faithful for a thousand years. But you read the New Testament and here you read, uh, you read the prophecies of eschatological Israel. They will be faithful. In fact, they are still they're going to be one heart. They're going to they're going to be tuned to love the, the, the Lord, their God. They're going to be you read in Ezekiel. We'll probably see some of those possibly. Uh, that thousand year span is actually the time of their lamentation. They spend the thousand years grieving over the Christ they crucified, even while they embrace him on their throne. You understand. We'll talk about that, too. All right. So chapter 31 said days are coming. Chapter 32 tells us when this is, when he regathers them, when he gives them the one heart. How long before cedar season's over with? Oh, okay. I've added oak to my allergies in addition to cedar. <coughs> All right. Even so, come Lord Jesus. All right. <coughs> my resurrection body won't have this. Now, <coughs> well, there will be trees on the new earth, but uh, they won't be cursed trees. They won't have allergens. And I will have a glorified body without allergies. All right. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Who's them? Israel. Thank you. That I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Remember under Mosaic law, they were never given any empowerment to keep it. But in kingdom law, they will. In the millennial kingdom, they will. When the attitude of when the, when the heart attitude of lust is added to the external command of, of thou shalt not commit adultery, they will have a heart 
to obey the Lord in, these, in all of these commands. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart, with all my soul. All right, so this is the message through Jeremiah. Is the church in there anywhere? Of course not. Ezekiel 20. <clears throat> Ezekiel 20. I'm headed for verse 37. That really, in my mind, that is a powerful verse. But let's go ahead and grab larger content to this, starting in verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God. As I live. Here's the language of a vow. As I live. The God who cannot lie. And he takes a vow. As I live. Well, how long is that? <laughs> it's forever. <clears throat> so how long is this promise for? Forever. Because it's as I live. And if he breaks his vow, what's the consequence of breaking a vow when you say as I live? That's right. That's right. Nowadays we say, you know, cross my heart, hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. We, we, it's, a, it's just a children's ditty on the playground. But oaths, solemn oaths, vows to God with death as the consequence for violating your oath is not a joking matter or a children's ditty. It's the reality of, of the nature of an oath or a covenant in the ancient world. And God Himself puts Himself under this oath. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. What will it take to humble Israel? What will it take for Israel to accept their king? It's going to take a mighty hand with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. Nothing short of the great tribulation of Israel will bring this about. I will bring you out from the peoples. Now remember, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem watching the... the uh, fall, watching the, the, the destruction as Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed the city and took them all captive. Uh, he was inside the city watching all that happen. Ezekiel was actually already gone. Ezekiel was one of the early captives that was taken away in 597 B.C., ten years prior. All right, And he was already living in Babylon. And, and uh, so both correspondents here, it's like news reporters before uh, you know satellite Fox News reporters, but Jeremiah was reporting live in Jerusalem and Ezekiel was reporting, you know, live in Babylon and they both have identical messages. All right, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you were scattered with a mighty hand and with outstretched arms and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you, notice now, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. There is actually a stopover before you are allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. He regathers everybody from the four corners of the earth, but before you can enter, you've got to pass through customs. All right? Passport control. And for the millennial kingdom, passport control means you need to be saved. I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. And remember, he took them out of Egypt and then he brought them down to Sinai. He entered into judgment with them. He gave them Mosaic law. But now days are coming when he's going to replace that covenant with a new covenant. And it's going to require a gathering out of all the nations. But it's going to require coming to a place and entering into judgment and giving this new law. Notice now. I will make you pass under the rod. I will make you pass under the rod. There's a foreshadowing of this actually when Jacob made all the sheep pass under the rod and he separated out spotted sheep and non-spotted sheep and he was bringing sheep into his fold and different aspects there. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. It hadn't happened yet. He shed His blood so that it can happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And notice, I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against Me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn. Every Jewish person on the planet will be brought out of the Gentile lands from the four corners of the earth. 
but they will not, all of them will enter into the millennial kingdom. Everyone is gathered, but they will not enter the land of Israel. They will be purged in this judgment. The wilderness judgment of Israel is what it's called. And you understand what purging means. It means executed. Jesus Christ, the conqueror, will physically execute all of these unbelievers. Every last one of them is going to go to hell. Only believers enter the millennial kingdom. Does that offend your sensitivities? A lot of folks in modern life don't like this idea. Wait a minute. You mean we we execute prisoners? That's against the Geneva Convention. All right. Well, Jesus Christ is not a signatory to the Geneva Conventions. (laughs) And the God creator of this universe will remove every unbeliever from the planet. He's going to start with the Jewish unbelievers here. When he's, when he's seated on the throne in Jerusalem, he'll gather all the Gentile unbelievers next. But remember, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. He has to purge Israel first. And then he gathers the sheep and goats and he separates them right hand and left. And all the, all the goats are going to hell. All the unbelievers will be purged there too. And the Gentile judgment. So they will all be brought out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. And if you think about it, this is a glorious thing for God to fulfill all of his promises because he promised that all Israel would be regathered. So he can't leave the Jewish unbelievers ungathered. He has to gather all of them. But he can't bring the unbelievers into the kingdom. So it seems like a conundrum that he has to break one of those promises. No, he doesn't break either promise. He fulfills them all. He regathers every Jewish person from the four corners of the earth. But only believers are going to enter into his, into his kingdom. All right. So there's our glimpse there in chapter 20. Key in on that phrase, bring you into the bond of the covenant. Just because a covenant is provided for does not mean that a covenant is actually placed into effect or that it's applied to somebody's account that it's applied to somebody's account. Think about it in terms of your own salvation. The blood that bought you was shed on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. But when was that blood applied to your account? The day you believed in Christ. That's right. September of 1973 in my case, or whenever it was that you got saved. All right. So the blood was shed, but the blood was not applied until you responded to the gospel offer by faith. Likewise, the blood was shed for Israel on a national basis as the blood of the covenant. But when will the blood be applied for Israel on a national basis? Second advent. After mighty arm wrath poured out. After tribulation. All right, still in Ezekiel then. Ezekiel 34. Goodness, I got seven minutes. Ezekiel 34. This has got to be the fastest hour of any hour in the week. I don't understand it. It's an hour that seems to only have 45 minutes sometimes. Or maybe it has 60 minutes, but each minute only has 45 seconds. Something's going on. All right, Ezekiel 34. If I'm not careful, I'm going to get sidetracked because this is a chapter that starts with the faithless shepherds of Israel. And woe to the faithless shepherds. The good shepherd is going to deal with them. You know. Any, uh, it's amazing how people in the church figure that God has called them to straighten out their pastor. And uh, they fail to realize that the good shepherd is far better than any church age legalist will ever be at disciplining a faithless shepherd that needs it. Anyway, I won't get sidetracked with that. Let's glance on down to uh, what it is that this good shepherd's going to do. Uh, he's going to give them an eternal shepherd. He's going to judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep in verse 20. And um, they're not going to be prey any, ever again. And uh, it says in verse 23, I will set over them that one shepherd, my servant David, He will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. It's going to be a neat interchange with the greater son of David reigning as king, but the literal David himself resurrected, glorified, and ruling as 
as the, uh, the prince. I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them in the places around my hill a blessing and will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. All of this is second advent. This is millennial. This is after they go through the tribulation. And the fruit and the tree of the field will yield its fruit and the earth will yield its increase and they will be secure on their land. I mean, they're going to have a crop yield that's unbelievable. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslave them. They will no longer be prey to the nations and the beasts of the earth will not devour them. They will live securely and no one will make them afraid. For I will establish for them a renowned planting place and they will not again be victims of famine in the land. They will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. They will know that I... Yahweh, their Elohim, and with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men. I am your God, declares the Lord God. Adonai, Yahweh. All right. So, you see the church in there anywhere? <laughs> no. All right. You know, I mean, in so many ways, it... it the rapture has to take place. The church has to be removed so that God can once again resume his, his dealings with Israel and with the Gentile nations the way he does in the tribulation and the way that he does in the millennium. All right, over to chapter 36, 22 through 32. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. You didn't earn this. You didn't deserve this. It's not for you. It's not about you. But for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. See, he's not acting for their sake. But he called them by his name. He has to defend his integrity. And so uh, you understand this here. This is why he has to act in the tribulation. This is why he has to discipline them. And this is why he has to pour out his wrath upon the Gentiles for his great name. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. You know, a Gentile looks at how God disciplines Israel and they better say, uh-oh, <laughs> if he deals with his own people like this, how will he deal with us? Right? A Gentile better wake up and say, this God of holiness demands holiness. And he holds his own people. He, his own people don't get it. He doesn't cut them any slack. He's a God of holiness. And so Gentile dogs better wake up and say, all right, if we're going to get any table scraps, we better, we better humble ourselves as well. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Again, bad theology looks at that to say, oh, well, I have the Holy Spirit, right? Like, oh, my sins are forgiven. This must apply to me. I will put... Uh, my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. I laugh every time these replacement theology people try to start saying that, yeah, we're taking over all Israel's blessings. Really? All right, well then pack your bags and go live in Israel's land. Have fun with that. <laughs> okay. People over there are throwing rockets at you and blowing you up and all kinds of stuff. All right. So you understand this is millennial. This is second advent. This is when the covenant will be put into effect. All right. And then uh, chapter 37, verses 26 through 20. At the last little bit here. I've got eight seconds. 37, verses 26 through 28. Got the valley of dry bones. You got uh, the hip bones connected to the leg bone, and you got the, res the resurrection of Israel here. All right. 
again, it's, this is when it's going to happen. My servant David will be king over them. This is all looking forward to millennium to second advent. All right. Next week, we will understand our role in the new covenant. And I would encourage you to give it some thought. If the new covenant is not made with us, then what is our connection? Do we have a connection? Do we have any relationship to the new covenant in any way? Are there New Testament passages that apply to the new covenant related to us? And so you've got seven days to find them for yourselves. And then... Uh, if you fail to do so, then one week from today I will spell it out for you. Uh, but it, I think a big clue comes when we understand what Christ's role is and how, what our connection is to Christ. All right. If you answer that, then you'll have a much better job trying to figure out what our connection is to the New Covenant. Start with what's our connection to Christ. Because Christ is the mediator of the New Covenant. All right. So start there and uh, take it from there. All right. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Open our eyes uh, to your truth. Help us to understand what this new covenant is about, what our relationship is to it, um, and um, how these passages are all applied. Thank you for the reality of your future, your future promises, which for us is uh, a trumpet. We're waiting for day by day and moment by moment, Father. The trumpet of the, uh, and the uh, shout. The Lord himself will descend with a shout. The voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And uh, the dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Might it even be today. Father, we thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.